What a joy it is to come together in fellowship and sing out songs of praise and honor to the Lord. Amen. To erupt in joy to, to the Lord and to remember what he has done for us. Um, I'm, I'm happy. Um, I'm, I'm excited about what we are, uh, the, the series that we are going to start with today. We, we are starting with a, a series on the Beatitudes, on Matthew chapter 5, and uh, we are going to call it Christ-like attitudes, Christ-like attitudes. With that, I want us to go to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, we are going to look at 1 until verse uh, 12. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1 until verse 12, but for today, we are just going to introduce um, um, the series that we are going to be um, busy with uh, for the uh, coming weeks. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. I'll just read verse 1 and 2, and then we'll go into it. Christ-like attitudes. Christ-like attitudes. Matthew chapter 5. Are we there? I read from the ESV. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, and we'll look at the other verses. And this is the word of God. Let us uh, bow our heads in prayer. Our dear Heavenly Father, what a great God you are, a great God of grace and mercy. Indeed, your mercies are new each and every morning, even as we come to you today we pray that you speak to us through your word. Teach our hearts, O oh God, to honor you, to love you, to see you as our ultimate and supreme treasure. Help us love you, O oh God. Help us obey your word by your spirit. In the precious name of Jesus Christ, we pray all this. Amen. Now, every country has a particular pattern by which it, it expects its citizens to conduct themselves. There are rules and regulations every citizen is expected to follow. And now, this is no different with the kingdom of God. Those who are citizens must have certain characteristics that identify them. They are the ones the Bible says... Uh, these citizens are, are identified as the ones who are called out of darkness into God's marvelous light, according to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 9. See, initially, they were not part of the kingdom of God. Therefore, that means that they still have habits and, and manners of their former manner of life. And, 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 and as citizens of the kingdom of God now, they must daily be conformed to Christ-likeness. And this is a description of each and every one of us. Jesus here on the Sermon on the Mount lays down the pattern for us as his disciples. The Sermon on the Mount is the state of, of the kingdom address. In it, Jesus outlines what the life of those who are his disciples must look like. Those who are committed 
who, who have committed their lives to following him uh, must be marked by certain characteristics. And in this sermon, he speaks about those characteristics. These are, in a way, the terms and conditions of the kingdom. In other words, one cannot be part of the kingdom of heaven unless they are marked by these characteristics. The Sermon on the Mount is a description of the effects of God's transforming grace, of God's transforming grace in our lives. In other words, in this sermon, Jesus is not outlining how to be saved, but what he is doing is showing uh, the lives of those who are already saved, what their lives must look like. In this sermon, Jesus describes what a person who has repented of their sin looks like. And I want us to see three things um, as we consider this sermon. I want us to see, one, the preacher, two, the audience, and three, the sermon. Let us start with the preacher. We see that in verse 1, Matthew introduces us to Jesus. He says, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and sat down. Usually, uh, before preachers take to the pulpit during conferences, Someone will be there to introduce them uh, and, and read their profile, uh, uh, the profile of the, of the preacher to, to the people so that the people will, will, will become better acquainted with the preacher as he stands before them. And allow me this morning to introduce to you our preacher. Jesus Christ, our Lord, is the main and only preacher in this conference. He is the best preacher for the occasion. Matthew tells us that he went up on the mountain and he sat down. He is not a fly-by-night preacher. This is the one of whom God the Father said in his baptism in chapter 3, uh, verse 17. God said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And if you notice on that occasion, as he was being baptized, the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit descended like a dove and rested on him. In other words, he has the Trinitarian authorization as the representative of the Godhead. Listen to what Paul says as he describes Jesus in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 to 20. Listen to these words. He says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven on, and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in, in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to him all things. Whether on earth or in heaven. Making peace by the blood of his cross. The writer of the letter of Hebrews does not want to be left out. In chapter 1, he joins the chorus. He says that Jesus Christ is the better revelation of God. 
because long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to the prophets. But in these last days, he speaks through, to us through his son, who is the heir of all things. And now notice how he describes Jesus Christ in, 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 in Hebrews chapter 1, verse, verse 3 and 4. This is what he says about Jesus Christ. He says, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the power of his word. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This is our preacher. He is a man of many titles. He is priest, prophet, and king. Isaiah describes him in, in, in chapter 7 verse 14 as Emmanuel, God with us. Then he continues again in chapter 9 verse 6 of, of Isaiah. He says he is the one on whose shoulders the government rests. His name is Wonderful Counselor. His name is Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Matthew describes him as our preacher. He goes on to say he is a man who is acquainted, well acquainted with the scriptures. When we, we, we look at chapter 4, remember in his temptation in, in, in the desert, when, when, when Satan was tempting him, he, he replied to Satan by saying those famous words, it is written. It is written as he quoted scripture from head. He is a man who is well acquainted with the scriptures. He is the greatest expositor of the Bible, the master interpreter. We, we see that even in his Sermon on the Mount, where he deals with misunderstandings of the law by saying to the people who are listening to, who are listening to him, you have heard it said. You have heard it said, but I say to you, he deals with all the misunderstanding of scripture. He explains scripture. He lays it down very well. He is the best expositor. His exposition of scripture is without error because he is unaffected by sin. When he speaks, he does not speculate because he understands the heart fully. He speaks words that penetrate the heart. You see, there are so many people today who claim to be preachers, but they are leading people astray. Our Lord warns us about them in, in the very same sermon, chapter 7, verse 15. He says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. They have an appearance of being preachers of the truth, but all they want is to take advantage of the church of Jesus Christ. Their sermons may sound sweet, but they are poisonous. They are wicked shepherds who love gain more than they love the sheep. Their God is their stomach. But we can look to Jesus Christ as our great shepherd. His preaching comforts the broken, convicts the sinner, strengthens the weak. It gives hope to the hopeless. It encourages the, the discouraged. 
we can look to him, trust in him, rejoice in him, and cry out to him because he alone has the words of eternal life. We can look to him with joy as our preacher. So Matthew introduces to us the preacher today. He says the preacher is Jesus Christ. But not only that, he wants to show us again the second thing. He says we see the preacher first of all. The second thing we see is the audience. He introduces us to the audience. Still in verse 1 of Matthew chapter 5. Notice that, that uh, there are two audiences before Jesus. The first audience is referred to as the crowds. They are referred to as the crowds. And the second audience is referred to as his disciples. It is obviously clear that uh, by identifying the audience in this manner, Matthew is distinguishing them. They are not the same. He wants to show us that there are two different crowds before Jesus Christ. Consider first the crowds. These are people who followed Jesus at a distance. They did not follow him because they were committed to him, but they were, they were following him because of what he was able to do. They wanted the miracles, but not the man himself. They wanted the bread for the stomach, but not the bread of life. Although this was the case, let us look at Jesus Christ. Jesus' heart was always upon or open to the crowds. His, his heart was always open to them. He, he showed compassion to the crowds. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, when he saw the crowds, the Bible tells us he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. We see the depth of his compassion when he heals the sick, touches the lepers, and feeds the hungry. John MacArthur explains uh, this by saying, whether the people were physically ill or healthy, emotionally stable or demon-possessed, financially poor or rich, politically oppressed or powerful, religiously insignificant or influential, intellectually ignorant or educated, Jesus had compassion on them. Jesus attracted all strata of people because he loved them all. You see, although these were not his primary audience, he was mindful of them because he came to seek and save the lost. He was a physician that came for the sick. And in this sermon, he, he, it becomes a great challenge to those who are outside the kingdom. As he declares uh, a, a life, uh, he declares what life in the kingdom looks like, he is at the same time calling those who are outside to enter through the narrow gate. He addresses their ignorance of God and the sinfulness of man. John Calvin wrote saying, Nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts. Listen to this. It consists of the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. And what Jesus is doing here is precisely in those areas, dealing with precisely those areas. 
that unbelievers are fatally ignorant of. He is dealing with their ignorance of God and the sinfulness of their hearts. The second audience that we consider is his disciples. Matthew tells us that when he sat down, his disciples came to him. These were the primary audience of the sermon that Jesus was about to preach. Matthew tells us in chapter 4, verse 17, that prior to, to this occasion, Jesus began to preach the gospel of the kingdom, saying, repent, for the kingdom of God, the, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And in chapter, in chapter 4, verse 18 to 22, he started calling individuals to himself, saying to them, follow me. And the Bible tells us they left everything and started following him. So these disciples are those who have heard and received the message of repentance and have started to follow Jesus Christ. And the question we might be asking ourselves is, what is a disciple? Uh, let me highlight for you three things that mark a disciple, just a few things, uh, uh, three. Uh, first of all, a disciple is someone who has repented and forsaken a life of sin. And th this takes place upon hearing the gospel message that challenges us that we have sinned against God. And, and because God is a holy God, uh, sin has separated us from him. And God, as a just God, must judge sin. He must do something about sin. He cannot ignore sin. Habakkuk says to God in, in chapter 2 of Habakkuk, verse 11, Chapter 1 is chapter 1. You are, you are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Therefore, God must judge sin. And the problem is that you and I cannot do anything about that. We, we, we cannot save ourselves. The Bible says all our righteous deeds are as filthy rags. And so we need someone to intervene. And the Bible shows us that God was the one who intervened by sending his son, Jesus Christ, as a provision to die for us on the cross. And when we look to him, we, we, we believe and repent of our sin, turn away from sin, and follow him. The second thing about the disciple is that a disciple is someone who follows Christ. A disciple is someone who follows Christ. A disciple is a follower of Christ. He or she has forsaken the world to pursue Christ alone. The disciple sees Christ as the supreme and ultimate treasure that he or she spends their entire life following him. The third thing about a disciple is that a disciple seeks to learn from Christ. A disciple seeks to learn from Christ. A disciple is a committed student of Christ. He or she seeks to learn from him. Like Mary, our greatest uh, uh, desire as his disciples must be to sit at his feet. That is the better place. So we see Matthew introduces to us here first the preacher who is Jesus Christ that introduces to us the audience. We see the audience that is before Jesus Christ is comprised of the crowds and it is comprised of his disciples that are before him. And the, the third thing and last thing that we see is the sermon. A conference is not a conference without a sermon. 
We see the same one starting from verse 2 to verse 12. This is the best sermon that has ever been preached in the, in the history of the entire world. And the reason for that is because the sermon comes from the very lips of the Messiah himself. It comes from the mouth of Jesus Christ. History stands as a witness to the impact of the sermon on the mount. Thomas Watson wrote about it. He says, here is both usefulness and sweetness. Here is a garden of delight. Here is the golden key which will open the gate of paradise. And a British writer by the name of Michael Green also refers to the sermon of the mount as the supreme jewel in the crown of Jesus' teaching. You see, the sermon here centers on the kingdom of heaven. It answers the question of, of, of who are those um, that are citizens of the kingdom and what must they look like? What must characterize them? And I would like us to, as I said, to confine our study for, for several weeks on just these uh, 12 verses. This part, of, uh, this part of the sermon is historically referred to as the Beatitudes. We know that the, uh, the word Beatitude is taken from the Greek, uh, the, the Latin word, uh, the Latin word beut, uh, which means the blessings. Matthew paints the setting for us here. With the crowds and disciples around Jesus, he says, Jesus sat down. Uh, this was a standard posture for, for rabbis when they were about to teach, unlike us who, who stand up to read uh, the Bible and, and preach. Rabbis would sit down and their disciples would stand before them, would sit by their feet to, to hear what they had to say. And Jesus Christ starts, in verse 2 he says, and he opened his mouth and taught them saying, He's about to say something. What is it that he has to say? As the ears are opened, ready to hear the Son of God, the one who came down from heaven to earth. He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Noticeably, 
the first word of this sermon is blessed. And Jesus repeats it nine times as he declares the message of the beatitude. The question is, what does that word mean? The Greek word that is used is makarios, which literally means to be happy. And I'm sure others have a translation here that says happy. But this word happy is not to be misunderstood as something subjective or, or sentimental. It is not based on how we feel or, or how well things are going in our lives. This Macario's happiness means to be favored and approved by God. This is from the, the, the perspective of Jesus. He is the one who, who, who gives us a clear view of who is truly blessed. Listen to what uh, uh, Matthew Henry says. He says, be, Jesus begins his sermon with blessings. He came into the world to bless us as the great high priest of our profession, as the blessed one, as he in whom all the families of the earth should be blessed. He came not only to purchase blessings for us, but to pour out and pronounce blessings on us. And here he does it as one having authority, as one that can command the blessing, even life forevermore. And that is the blessing here again and again promised to the good. His pronouncing them happy makes them so. For those whom he blesses are blessed indeed. The Old Testament ended with a curse in Malachi chapter 4 verse 6. The, new, the gospel in the New Testament begins with a blessing. And here we are called that we, we should inherit this blessing. You see, when we look at this sermon, it is here that our Lord exposes the heresy of the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel is focused with the externals. You see God's favor upon your life when you gain fame, wealth, and perpetual health. It is concerned with gaining the world and amassing wealth. If, if you drive this particular car and if you live in this type of house or um, you have this amount of money building up in your bank, that's when you are blessed. That's when God's face is shining upon you. You see, even people can live lives that are unpleasing to God. They, they can live lives that are, that are prideful, that are arrogant. They can be lovers of money. They, they can be immoral. But as long as their wallets are fed, they are blessed. And as long as they lavishly give to the man of God, the man of God, then they are blessed and they are highly favored. They say you are blessed and highly favored. But Jesus presents a, an antithetical view. He, he shows us what it truly means to be blessed. It is not one that is concerned with the externals, but the attitude of the heart that is changed by God. And are a heart that has experienced the grace of God. It is important that we notice this. And again, even as we look at the, the Beatitudes, it is also important that we notice that they are not randomly arranged. It's not like Jesus was saying things and uh, didn't know what will come next and he, he just 
said things that were, were coming out of his mouth, they are thoughtfully and carefully arranged. First, when we look at the Beatitudes, each Beatitude, each, each Beatitude, uh, there is a declaration of blessedness. Then a character that that blessing is bestowed upon. Like, blessed are the poor. And then upon that is followed by a, a promise for that character. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For they shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. And notice again that the first eight the first beatitude and the eighth beatitude have the same promise to them. It says, for theirs is the kingdom of, of heaven. And again, when we look at uh, these beatitudes, they are divided into two groups. The first four are chiefly concerned with our disposition towards God. And the last three are concerned with our disposition towards others. And as we will be looking at these Beatitudes, we'll, we'll look at them separately uh, in the coming weeks, um, looking at how Jesus describes those who have repented of their sin and have followed him as Lord and Savior of their lives. And I'm really happy about this, and, and I, I want you to be happy as well. I want you to be excited about this. My desire is that as we dive deep into this series for the coming weeks is that uh, first of all we will what we hear will not only be something that is uh, interesting but something that penetrates our hearts inspiring us to Christ likeness the second thing is that I, I want to see I, I, I desire that we see our inability to live out these beatitudes by ourselves and, and, and that we need God's enabling grace daily. Thirdly, that as these attitudes are impressed upon our hearts by the Spirit's power, we will continue to be effective witnesses of Christ to the world. And fourthly, that our unity as the church, as we hear this, as we are applying this, our unity will grow stronger deeper, richer, and sweeter, knowing that it is based on Christ's redemptive work in our lives and not on anything else. Lastly, those, that those who have not submitted to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, as we go through this, will by grace be persuaded to bow the knee before him and commit their lives to the kingdom of God. Now the question is, how can you be involved as we go through this? How can you be involved? Three things. First of all, pray. Pray that God will give you a heart that delights in his word. A heart that is excited about his word. Pray that God will grow the church spiritually. That we will have corporate excitement and delight in the word. Isn't that amazing? It's amazing, eh? The church that is corporately excited and delighting in the word daily. Pray again for me personally. Let me take advantage of that. Pray for me personally. 
that God grants me wisdom and understanding as I search the scriptures. And that he bless the preaching of his word with his power and grace. And pray that those who do not know him will come to know him. Secondly, encourage. Use this as an opportunity to encourage one another. Remind each other of the word of God whenever we come together. Encourage your colleagues with the gospel truth. Encourage your families, your husbands, your wives, your children, neighbors, friends. Encourage them with the word of God. You see, the world we live in is a gospel-needy world. And let us become gospel providers. Lastly, invite. Invite your colleagues. Invite your neighbors, your family members, if they are not already coming. Pray, encourage, invite. Pray, encourage, invite. Amen. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you. Thank you for the faithfulness of your word to teach us. God, we pray that you may continue to encourage us, O oh Lord. Give us a joy and an excitement in the things of the Lord. Grow us, O oh Father, with such boldness that we will be able to speak about your word to, to people that we encounter, people that we come across, that we will not be ashamed of the gospel, Lord. That we will speak of you freely. God, we pray that you build us up as the church. You encourage us. You strengthen us. Even as we will be going through this series, oh God, that we will grow more in Christ-likeness. We'll grow more in unity, oh God, in love for one another. We pray this in the wonderful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.